Today on Categorical Imperatives, I am going to be joined by the great Mike Meharry of the 10th Amendment Center. Uh, he was kind enough to uh, come on and give me some of his time to talk about Second Amendment sanctuaries. Uh, but when it comes to the Second Amendment, I'm pretty good with law, uh, but I'm not really good uh, with policy as much. Uh, and that's really where the guys over at the 10th Amendment Center shine. So I had to bring in my ringer. Uh, so we're going to be talking about all kinds of uh, different uh, myths and facts uh, surrounding Second Amendment sanctuaries. It was a really great interview. Uh, stay tuned. You're really going to enjoy it. Hey, welcome to Categorical Imperatives. Uh, I am joined today by Mike Meharry of the Tenth Amendment Center. Uh, I'm really glad to have him back on the show. Uh, Mike is, for those of you who don't know, uh, the National Communications Director for the Tenth Amendment Center. He is also the Managing Editor for Ship Gold, uh, and he is the author of four books, including the Constitution Owner's Manual, uh, as well as Our Last Hope, Rediscovering the Lost Path to Liberty, Smashing Myths, Understanding Madison's Notes on Nullification, uh, as well as his book with Mike Volden, uh, who is the uh, sort of head of the Tenth Amendment Center, Nullification Objections, Dismantling the Opposition. And he has authored a number of uh, e-books, too, as well as The Power of No, The Constitutional Basis for State Nullification, uh, The Report of 1800, and The Jefferson Letters. And he is the host of a number of podcasts, including Thoughts from a Hairy Head and The Friday Gold Wrap. So, Mike, thank you so much for uh, coming back on the show here. Well, thank you for having me. Let's keep our fingers crossed that the uh, internet holds up. This is what the fourth time. Fourth times, no, it's third time. So, third time is definitely a charm. Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> thank, thank you so much for having me on this show. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. So, I was going to say this is the second time I've had you on the show, but technically, it's not like the fourth time I've had you on. That's the show. yeah, the fourth time. <laughs> yeah, really. Yeah, it's so much fun. I just keep coming back. <laughs> right, for sure. So, um, yeah, so I, I brought Mike on to talk about uh, Section, Second Amendment sanctuaries. Um, but before we do that, I want to know if you would just tell us a bit about, uh, for those who don't know, first yourself and the Tenth Amendment Center and what you guys are about and what you do. Yeah, absolutely. So I am the National Communications Director at the Tenth Amendment Center. So basically that means I write stuff. Uh, my background's in journalism. Uh, and I've, uh, I've actually worked in news. Uh, I was a sports editor for a while. And uh, then got into the political activism about a decade ago. And uh, slowly that's kind of evolved into my full-time gig. Um, the Tenth Amendment Center has been around for quite a while. It was founded back in 2006 by Michael Bolden, who you mentioned uh, a few minutes ago. And uh, I joined about, it was about 2010, I think, when I got started getting involved. And really, there's two basic uh, kind of broad scopes of work that we do at the TAC. One is education. We try to teach people about the Constitution, about the original meaning, uh, to try to explain what the government is supposed to look like, what it's supposed to actually be doing, and then kind of contrasting that uh, to the monstrosity that the federal government has turned into today. And then we also do activism, and that involves work primarily at the state level, but also to some degree at the local level, finding ways to undermine 
unconstitutional and overreaching federal power. So it's using the power of the states to block federal actions. And the way that we do this primarily is through uh, what is known as anti-commandeering. And uh, quite simply, it's getting states and, and even local governments to simply say no to enforcing federal laws or to implementing federal programs. The courts have held consistently uh, since uh, 1842 that the federal government cannot force states or local governments to use their personnel or resources uh, to do federal functions. And so by simply withdrawing those uh, those assets, those resources, that pers- uh, those personnel, state and local governments can effectively block what the federal government is doing because the dirty little secret is the feds depend on state and local governments to do virtually everything that they do. Uh, so we look at ways to do this. We've, we've seen it primarily uh, in, or I wouldn't say primarily, but well, yeah, maybe primarily, but at least First, we saw that with the legalization of marijuana at the state level. And at this point, federal prohibition is really basically just uh, something in name only. Um, So we try to apply that strategy to all kinds of different uh, issues from guns to health care to sound money. Anything that the state is doing and can stop doing, it's a way to undermine what the federal government is trying to do. Awesome. So, uh, and do you want to uh, maybe just uh, introduce us in here to uh, uh, Section Amendment Sanctuaries too, and kind of what the idea behind these are, basically? Yeah, absolutely. So this is going along with this strategy. If you have federal gun control, and our position is that all federal gun control is unconstitutional based on the Second Amendment, yeah. uh, and you could even get rid of the Second Amendment completely, and there's still very little authority in the Constitution for the federal government to regulate guns, particularly within the borders of a state. Um, So anytime that the federal government starts trying to implement federal gun control, it's going to depend on state and local governments to help enforce it. Uh, They need local cops. I'm back. back. There you are. All right. I say we just keep going at this point. What do you think? Yeah, I think that was just a momentary pause. I think we can keep going with that one. Sorry about that. Right. No, no, it's it's my internet that's uh, having issues. We're having thunderstorms for you folks out there. We're wondering what the heck's going on here in uh, Northeast Florida. So my internet's okay. really, really wonky right now. But um, yeah. so let me just kind of back up. I was talking about the fact that the federal government has a very difficult time enforcing federal gun control without the participation of local law enforcement, state yeah. law enforcement. They need your local cops and local sheriffs to enforce federal gun control. So yeah. by removing that assistance, it makes it very difficult for the federal government to uh, infringe on uh, the right to keep and bear arms. So the idea of a sanctuary city or a sanctuary state is simply that that jurisdiction says, we're not going to enforce this federal gun control. And again, as I mentioned, this is supported by Supreme Court precedent. And I normally am not a big, you know, big fan of what the Supreme Court says or doesn't say. But in this right. case, it actually does give us a powerful tool that is recognized within the legal system as it exists that we can And you might as well use, use it while you have it too, you know. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so the idea is, as I said, it's simply that the a state or a local area is not going to enforce uh federal gun controls. Now 
you know, we've seen different flavors of this. Some uh, some of these sanctuaries have been for like future federal gun control. So they're just looking ahead. If something more draconian comes down the line, then uh, uh, then they wouldn't enforce that. Some states have actually gone farther and are looking at actually ending enforcement of um, present and past federal gun control laws. So I, I think the best two examples that we have today are uh, laws that were actually just passed this legislative session in Missouri and in Arkansas. They do the same thing. They're slightly different in, in their approach to doing it. Uh, the Missouri law actually defines a number of specific federal actions that will not be enforced. So they're not going to enforce anything that uh, puts a tax on firearms that's not common to any other good. They're not going to enforce any law that would confiscate firearms. So you can actually go and you can look at this definition, and these are the things that the state is not going to enforce. Uh, Arizona took a little bit of a different approach, and uh, they're not going to enforce any federal gun control that is not already in state law. Uh, so, you know, if if uh, if something is in state law, they'll enforce it under the state law, but they're not going to enforce it under the federal law. So both of these do this basically the same thing. They end that state and local enforcement. So the, the term sanctuary kind of comes from uh, the term that was that has been applied to uh, what they call immigration sanctuary cities. Uh, where in a number of states and localities, they've um, ended certain cooperation with immigration enforcement. And of course, folks on the on the right conservatives don't like this very much. The reason they don't like it is because it's effective um, and, and it can be just as effective uh, as uh, applied to firearms. So it's a, it's a really it's a really good strategy. It's supported by the Supreme Court. So the federal government can come along and say, you can't do that. Absolutely. We can do that. Uh, and and then it's just simply effective because, again, the federal government doesn't have the personnel or resources to enforce all of its gun laws on its own. Uh, it's just like, uh, you know, if you've ever seen drug raid on TV, uh, you'll see like two DEA agents and you know, 45 sheriff's deputies all milling around. Uh, yeah. Federal gun control is the same way. They depend ATF depends on state and local cooperation. You pull that away and it's going to make it really hard. So I think it's a great strategy um, uh, when applied properly. Well, and, and that's part of what I wanted to bring you on to talk about is, is you say when it's applied properly, it's very effective. It, and you're right. The, the sanctuary cities or states as far as immigration have been very, very effective. It's surprisingly mm-hmm. effective. Um, and that's sort of part of the problem with the uh, the Second Amendment sanctuaries. Is it seems like a lot of time people are just taking like uh, their, their sheriff just kind of like gives their word like, well, I'm not going to enforce right. gun laws. Uh, and, and then they take that for being the same force of law as actually the state passing some kind of law. And and, and that's really where the problem with the sanctuary cities comes in. It, 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 there's a hard time convincing uh, people, I, I, I guess especially people who are predisposed to want to have sanctuary uh, cities or states for gun control work, uh, to say, well, no, there's there's a reason why this works for immigration and it doesn't work for uh, the Second Amendment because you guys aren't doing this very well, and and that's right. sort of a, a big problem, really. Yeah, I want to I want to kind of touch on two things that are often done and called sanctuaries that. I don't think qualify for the term. And it's not even necessarily that they're bad steps. It's just that you can't call them sanctuaries. Right. Uh, the, the first one is more, you see this more on a local level. Um, and I think it's important. A lot of people don't 
you know, if, if you're not into politics, you're not going to know these distinctions. And, and, you know, I don't really expect people to because, I mean, who really wants to get into this, right? Um, but there's a, a very important distinction between an ordinance and a, um, uh, what do they call them? A, uh, not a referendum. My mind just went blank. They're, they have ordinances. Um, there's another word. An ordinance has the force of law. Um, and a resolution. A, a resolution. That's the word I'm looking for. Yeah. Right. An ordinance has a force of law. A resolution does not have the force of law. If you pass an ordinance in most states, it is legally binding. If I pass an ordinance that says uh, the sheriff and the police department in this county cannot enforce X, then it is a legal statute that legally binds the sheriff and the police department from enforcing X. If you pass a resolution, you're basically saying, we don't want you to enforce X, but if you enforce X, there's really not anything that we can do about it legally. Yeah. So a lot of these states are passing resolutions and then calling them sanctuaries. And I'm not opposed to ordinances as, to, as a strategic first step. Sometimes it's a good idea. In fact, sometimes you can't get an ordinance passed initially because of the political a, pass. A resolution right? as a first step. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's what I meant. I'm sorry. Yeah, sorry. Um, yeah, I think that can be a positive, positive first step. It puts people on record. Um, it, it creates the debate. It gets the conversation started. But people have to understand that it's not legally binding, and you need to take that second step and actually pass a legally binding ordinance. So that's the first place, especially in local government, where we see kind of uh, things kind of go off the rail. It's it's they're calling it something that it's not. And I think in some cases it's legitimate um, ignorance. They just, you know, they don't really understand the difference. And then I think in some cases, honestly, I think it's politicians posturing and they know yeah. that it's not legally binding, but they want to do something and say, oh, look what I did. Uh, and, and, and they know, in fact, that they're not doing anything. So, um, that's kind of the first way. The second thing that happens, and we've seen this more at the state level, um, is you'll pass they'll pass a law, but the law doesn't define exactly what it is that they're not going to enforce. So, for instance, in Tennessee, they said that we're not going to enforce any federal gun laws unless a state or the federal courts rule it that it's unconstitutional. Well, that's exactly the, the way things are now. I mean, if a court rules something unconstitutional, then right. uh, it is void and no longer on the books. So basically, uh, Tennessee passed a law saying that if the courts do what they're supposed to do, then we'll do what we're supposed to do and not enforce it. Uh, and they're calling this a sanctuary. Well, it's not a sanctuary. They don't. And, and I think this is the key for people to, to wrap their heads around. They don't have to have the court's permission. It doesn't yeah, even have crucial. to be unconstitutional. Yeah. yeah, it's absolutely crucial. A state or a local government could say, we're not going to enforce anything that the federal government does. Um, and they don't have to have a reason for it other than they don't want to. And that goes back to this anti-commandeering. It's the, it, the idea is that the state and local personnel and the state and local money belongs to the state and local governments. And therefore, they have the right to utilize those resources as they see fit. The federal government can't come in and say, you know, you have to use your money to enforce our law. 
And so uh, they don't have to have a reason. There doesn't have to be a de declaration of constitutionality. There doesn't have to be anything. They can say, we're not going to enforce federal gun control because it's Tuesday and, uh, and, and there's thunderstorms. They could literally do it for that, yeah. for that uh, silly of a reason. Yeah. Um, but instead, they want to do this convoluted stuff where basically they're asking for permission. You know, if the federal government gives us permission, then we'll stop enforcing federal gun control. Again, I think some of it is ignorance, and I think some of it is grandstanding by politicians where they want to make you think that they're doing something when they're really not doing anything. Um, right. We saw well, a similar thing in West Virginia where they said, uh, we're not going to allow the federal government to commandeer our personnel or resources. But then they created this definition of con commandeering, which basically would have, to, you know, you'd have to have the federal government come and literally like take their stuff. That never happens. No. The way it actually works is the state and local cops volunteer to join these task force. I mean, this is all right. voluntary. So that's why you have to have some provision in state or local law to say no police officers you may not do this because quite frankly cops want to enforce federal gun control and that's a dirty little uh dirty little secret too um you know yeah i, I just actually did a real short video today on the uh for the 10th amendment center twitter um i do a bunch of these little one minute videos and uh, i made the point today i see this all the time i live in an area that's pretty conservative very very red politically and you'll see a lot of vehicles with the um the thin blue line sticker and then the come and take it sticker. It'll be on the same truck. I'm like, <laughs> dude, who do you think's going to come and take it? You know, it's the thin blue line people that are coming to take it. Yeah. And the dirty little secret is, is that state and local law enforcement lobbies almost always oppose anything that's going to um, dare damage their relationship with their federal partners. Uh, and yeah. prime example, uh, just uh, last week, the uh, governor of Louisiana vetoed that state's constitutional carry bill, uh, permitless carry. So the people in Louisiana would have been oh, able really? to carry concealed. Yeah. Oh, so they were going to be able to carry concealed. The The governor vetoed it. Not surprising. It's a Democrat governor. I think oh, it was expected. Yeah. But they had a veto-proof majority. Oh. Uh, and when they went to override the veto, four Republicans switched votes. Actually, three Republicans switched votes. One just didn't bother to show up to vote. Um, and voted to sustain the veto. So no constitutional carry in Louisiana. And one of these Republicans flat out said that the reason that he changed his vote was because he talked to police officers in his district and they were not in favor of permitless carry. So you have this pressure from state and local law enforcement to enforce these federal gun controls. Their war on drugs and their federal money and their federal partnerships is more important to them than uh, doing what is right by the Constitution. Very frustrating. Right. Well, and that's a huge problem is that uh, the way the federal government works nowadays is they take so much extra money from the states just so they can dish it back to the states just to get yeah, to them to enforce these things. And that's such a huge problem there by itself. It is. Yeah. Um, and, and especially in terms of policing, because they have all of this federal grant money that comes in for, you know, from the Homeland Security Department, they have the asset forfeiture money that comes in. There's millions and millions oh, yeah. of dollars flowing from the federal government into police departments. Now, one thing that I, I do want to make clear that that oftentimes people get a little bit confused on uh, is what, what they'll say is, well, Mike, you know, you can not enforce this, but the federal government is just going to pull all the funding. So they're going to force these state and local governments to uh, comply by 
using funding. And to some degree, it's true the federal government can pull funding, but under the anti-commandeering doctrine, they can only take away funding that is related to the thing that the state or local government's not doing. So in the case of immigration, you know, they've talked about defunding sanctuary cities. They can't do it. Uh, they can only take away money that relates to immigration enforcement. That's not really all that much money. Um, you know, so if, if I remember correctly, the the Supreme Court ruling that had to do with that it had to do with something about toxic dumping. It was something like no more than five percent of all funds or some, something like that. Am I correct? Uh, there, so there's there's two cases that govern this. Uh, the first was uh, I think a 1980s case, if I remember the dates correctly, that related to the uh, drunk driving laws. Oh, that. Uh, yeah, so you'll recall. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's back again. I think it was in the '80s when the federal government decided that every state needed to have um, 0.08, 21, and over only alcohol. <clears throat> and a lot of states at that time would allow 18-year-olds to purchase alcohol. So they kind of put this through, and they pressured uh, these uh, the states by saying, "Okay, well, if you don't raise your uh, alcohol age, then we're going to take away federal highway funds." And that actually went all the way to the Supreme Court. And in that decision, the Supreme Court held that, no, the federal government cannot use funding as a coercive tool. But then they said, well, the amount of money we're talking about here with uh, this federal highway funding isn't enough money to raise to the level of being coercive. They didn't actually put a percentage on it, although I think you're right. I think it was like five, five, maybe somewhere between five and 10 percent. Then we go to the. we go to the Obamacare decision, uh, which all in all was awful, oh, but it did have around. this one yeah. little – it had one, one little jewel in it because part of Obamacare was expanding uh, Medicaid or Medicare. I get those two mixed up. I think it was Medicare. Um, and so the original Obamacare plan was if states did not expand the program, then they were subject to losing current funding. And in that decision, the court held that, no, you can't take away current funding to force them to expand the program. So we do have limits on what the federal government can do with funding. And to the extent that the federal government can take away funding, I would uh, highly urge state and local representatives to try to learn how to live without it. <laughs> because right. I think the Constitution, I think our liberties are far more important than a, you know, a few bucks handed out by the, by the feds. Absolutely. And and I guess the other thing I would ask about is uh, what is the relation then necessarily to uh, what they talk about is like sub-federal commandeering doctrine uh, as far as like home rule versus Dylan's rule. Uh, and, and how does that relate to the ability to tell the feds no? So you're talking about uh, between the state and local governments? Or? Yeah, yeah, because the, the uh, local government doesn't have any sovereign power of its own per se. It, right, it's right. all derived from the state government. Correct. So that's what I'm wondering right. about. Yeah, th so that makes it much more difficult uh, for a state to – or for a, a local government to buck mm -hmm. state law. Yeah. Now, I, I don't think there's such a problem. I think if uh, – you know, if, if – so I, I live near Jacksonville. Let's say Jacksonville. This would never happen, by the way. But let's just pretend Jacksonville decides we're not going to enforce federal gun control. I don't think the state would really step in in that case. It might, but it probably wouldn't. But if Jacksonville said we're not going to enforce – Florida has a red flag law. Let's say Jacksonville said we're not going to enforce the uh, state red flag law. They would have a hard time doing that 
legally because the state has ultimate control over the city of Jacksonville. It can do whatever it wants. It could actually make Jacksonville cease to exist. Um, so it is very difficult for a local government to nullify or you know, anti-commandeer against a state law in most states. Now, some states do have more autonomy for their um, for their local jurisdictions. Illinois, in particular, has a very strong home rule um, system. So, uh, counties and cities in uh, Illinois uh, would have a much easier time bucking the state than, say, in Florida, where there really is no uh, home rule at all. Um, so, yeah, that is difficult. Now, that's not to say that it shouldn't be done. Um, I'm just saying that from a legal standpoint, it becomes much more difficult. So if a, if a county sheriff says, I'm not going to enforce a state law, this actually came up in Kentucky. I, I know Kentucky law pretty well because I used to live up there. Um, the governor can actually remove a sheriff from office for um, basically, uh, the, there's a term for it. It's basically dereliction of duty. So the governor could argue that, you know, by not enforcing state law, you're not doing your duty. He could remove that sheriff from office. So if a sheriff were to buck the state of Kentucky, and some of them actually did with the coronavirus regulations, um, they could potentially be um, uh, thrown out of office. So they are putting themselves at some risk professionally, whereas when a, a state officer refuses to enforce a federal law, the federal government can't do anything about it. There's no no repercussion for their professionalism or for, for their jobs, so to speak. So um, all of that to say that, you know, I'm not saying that if you're a sheriff in a, in a local jurisdiction that you shouldn't buck the state, maybe you should, you know, um, yeah. maybe there's a time when you should even be willing to risk your job, but people need to understand again, these distinctions legally. So they understand what they're getting into. And that it's that it's different when you're looking state to County as than it is from state to federal. For sure. So, um, what would you recommend for someone who, uh, maybe on, on a local, a city or a countywide, or or even a statewide level, if they are looking to make their or city or county or state a, a sanctuary, you know, whatever city, county, state, what would be a good first step for them to do? I, I, I mean, where should they start out looking to, or, or, or what would be a good place for them to go? Yeah, that's a really good question, and, and honestly, it's it's not an easy question to answer because so much depends on the lay of the land politically where you are. So if you are in New Jersey, you're going to have a hell of a hard time um, getting the state to pass some type of, of you know limit on gun control. That They're just not going to do it. That's not the political environment there. So you're going to have to start with a much smaller step. Uh, maybe you start at your city level, and maybe you do start just with the resolution to try to create that conversation, to take that first step, and then add it to build on. On the other hand, if you're in Alabama, uh, you have a much more friendly environment when it comes to firearms. Then you can maybe even take a uh, you know a bolder step, start at the state level by introducing uh, model legislation that we have at the Tenth Amendment Center um, to actually and enforcement of uh, future or even present federal gun control. And again, that comes down to strategy. Can you get uh, the state to stop enforcing gun control that's already on the books? 
you have to kind of feel that out. If not, maybe start with future and then build on that. So there's always strategy involved when you're looking at what legislative steps to take. Um, you know, if somebody's interested in in kind of uh, navigating that, I would be more than happy to help them out. And they can shoot me an email at michael.meharry at 10thamendmentcenter.com. Just let me know what you're interested in doing. And, and I would be happy to kind of help advise and and. Uh, help people through the process because it's not it there are a lot of uh, uh variables that you have to factor in as you move into actual activism yeah definitely all right uh well and do you have uh, anything else you really have to add on the uh, topic generally really here well no i think we've covered it i mean i think the key the key takeaways are number one it is absolutely constitutional for a state or a local government to refuse to enforce a federal act. So people would need to understand it because the first thing you'll get from opponents of, uh, of these types of things is like, well, that's not constitutional because of the supremacy clause. Right. Uh, oh, when yeah. they tell you that, oh. yeah, yeah. When, when they tell you that they, they're, they're either ignorant of the anti-commandeering doctrine or they're lying to you. And I'll let you decide which that is. <laughs> it well, they, the they're so good at, at bringing out experts who bring out the first part of the supremacy clauses up. Yes, the oh, second it drives part, me crazy. It, yeah, it, without the in pursuance thereof, it, it's kind of an important aspect of it, you know? Yeah, yeah. I can't tell you how many times I've seen uh, articles and, and quotes where, you know, you'll get the uh, the the – this constitution and the laws and the laws dot 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 are the supreme law of the land. You know they, they right. put the ellipsis in and take out the oh, pursuance thereof. That. Yes, yeah. it's, it's a it's a very important thing. So but that's key to understand that yeah. you know constitutionality isn't even really at issue here. It's a matter of how does the state and local government want to allocate its personnel and resources, and it can do that as it sees fit. Um, and so that's the first important thing. The second important thing is understand exactly what you're doing. If you really want to end enforcement, then it has to be at the local level, it has to be an ordinance. And at the state level, you have to actually define what it is that you are not going to enforce. It's not good enough to simply say, we're not going to enforce violations of the second amendment, because what is that? I mean, you and I might know what that means, but from a legal standpoint, a police officer is going to say, well, no court has declared anything as a violation of the Second Amendment, so I can enforce all of this. Right. You have to be very specific about what it is that's not going to be enforced. We're not going to enforce gun confiscation. We're not going to enforce registration. We're not going to enforce a red flag law. Whatever it is, it needs to be very specific. Or you can go the Arizona route and just say, uh, we're only going to enforce what is in state law. And I really like that approach a lot because then as an activist, that gives you the ability. We've gotten rid of all of the federal stuff. Then we can look at what uh, what the state is doing and attack that at each, uh, you know, each individual piece. Um, and so I, I like that approach. But either one will work, but it has to be defined. Don't let the courts define it for you. Don't make it vague. It has to be very, very specific. And again, uh, for folks that are interested, we do have model legislation for both local and federal, um, either an ordinance or a law at the uh, state level over at 10thamendmentcenter.com. And again, you can feel free to email me and I'll be happy to uh, give you those links if you can't find them. Awesome. All right. Well, yeah, uh, I guess, is there anything else you can think about really here to cover as far as uh, uh, Second Amendment sanctuaries? 
No, I just think it needs to be done more. Um, yeah, you know, absolutely. <laughs> there, there seems to that, be this be reticence, and I've, I've, uh, I've, I've teased some of my my f- uh, friends who are who are big right to keep and bear arms advocates, and, and told them that hey, you guys need to have the uh, the guts of the of the marijuana people. You know, I mean, yeah. I mean, they were the the weed people were relentless, and and you know, it's interesting if you go back to 1996 which was the year that California um, legalized medical marijuana, first state to to buck the feds and legalize. It was not an easy path. Uh, the federal government was very aggressive in trying to stop the medical oh, yeah. marijuana businesses in California. There were a lot of people who went to jail, a lot of people who lost assets. People were willing to take a risk because they thought marijuana was that important. Mm-hmm. And I would love to see that type of commitment in the Second Amendment community. Um, because they where, seem so much more pe- fervent about it personally, you know? Yeah. Like, they seem like they'd be so much more committed to it than the weed people. But, in, it, I mean, in practice, they necessarily aren't. I don't know. Yeah. I think a little bit of it is is that the um, – that the right to keep and bear arms tends to be an issue that is more popular on the right side of the political spectrum. So conservatives, yeah, conservatives also have a strong respect for law and order. So right, right. Whereas you know, I think sometimes the weed people are like, "F it, I'm going to smoke weed whether anybody says I can or not." Um, yeah. I think I think gun people are a little more reluctant to say, "Hey, I'm going to carry a firearm even if it's against the law." Uh, because there's that respect for law and order. Right. And, um, you know, personally, I think that at some point it requires people being willing to stand up and 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 put it on the line and say no. You know, one of my favorite characters in history is Rosa Parks, because I think she demonstrated the best way to face down an injustice. Mm-hmm. She literally just said no. You know, they told her to give up the seat on the bus. And she said, I'm not going to do it. Um, and of course there were consequences for that. She did end up going to jail. She ended up losing her job because she went to jail. Uh, right. so she sacrificed, but she was willing to take that stand and, and her stand, you know, people were angered by this and it created this whole movement that ultimately ended in the end of Jim in Jim Crow. And, yeah. um, you know, she was willing to take that step and, and make that stand, uh, Sometimes you got to be willing to do that and take those, you know, take those hits. And that's a hard thing. I mean, I'm not I'm not going to criticize anybody who doesn't, you know, I'm not willing to go to jail. I understand that. But right. um, if you really believe in this, right, then at some point you're going to have to band together and stand up. And I think that, um, you know, I think there are enough people in the United States that we could end federal gun control through state action, just like we did marijuana. Um, oh, yeah. You know, one state at a time. And I think I, you know, honestly, I am very happy with the progress that we made this past legislative session with two states, uh, you know, actually taking solid steps forward. Um, we had uh, we had another bill that actually passed in Arkansas. It was a little little wishy washier in its language, but it was decent. Yeah. It got vetoed um, and, and they did not have the votes to override a veto. But um, so we are seeing this movement. And so hopefully as we move into the next legislative year, we'll build on that and we'll see other states begin to uh, um, to take these steps. And in fact, uh, there's already been a bill pre-filed for the 2022 session in Kentucky to uh, to end enforcement. I think it's future federal gun control. So um, I'm, I'm optimistic because I'm starting to see this movement build 
and and quite frankly biden yeah. in the white house kind of helps um <laughs> right yeah i think there was a little yeah. bit of you know you had a little bit of um of republican laziness and thinking well donald trump's president now he's, he's not going to do gun amendment. control yeah, yeah right he wasn't by the way <laughs> no he um, wasn't at all yeah but um, yeah. You know, and that and that goes to show you shouldn't trust any politicians. That's why you need to have these things on the books because you can't trust, you know, some guy to say, "Oh, we won't do this." Oh, yeah, you will when the money comes. Right, exactly. So I'm yeah. optimistic. I, I just think we need to. I think we need to do more. I think folks that are listening, um, you know, call your state representative, call your state senator, pitch this idea to him. Say, "Hey, we need to turn um, my state into a gun sanctuary." And I think a lot of states. I think it would play well, you know, particularly in the southeast, out west. Um, there are a lot of places we could do this. So. Yeah, I just that reminds me, sort of your comparison of, of the weed to guns. There, uh, something I heard uh, uh, Penn Jillette say, who's kind of a famous libertarian, and and he mm -hmm. has this quote he uses a lot, where uh, if you could just convince the the gun people that the weed people are right, and you convince the weed people that the gun people are right, the whole country would be libertarian. And I, I think there's something <laughs> yes, to that. He's right. Yeah. yeah. You know, so. And it's it was funny, and and you know. Back during the big, you know, you remember the Tea Party movement? Oh, uh, I did yeah. a lot of speaking back in the Tea Party days, um, talking about the Constitution. I would always talk about weed. So I go into these places and, and you know, the Tea Party, the age group tended to, to trend a little bit older. You know, a lot of uh, a lot of boomer generation. Yeah. And I would always talk about weed. And I would always end up making some people uncomfortable. But there was always quite a few people that once you explained it to them, they got it, you know. Um, yeah. especially when you relate it to firearms. So, yeah, I think it's a, I think it can be a powerful thing. And, um, you know, mm -hmm. at, at this point, sometimes you have to take things issue by issue and, and things that we can do on the left that we can't necessarily do on the right, but as a broader strategy, um, I, I think we need to, to continue to just keep pushing on every issue that we can to roll back federal power and devolve stuff back to the States. And, you know, for me, I, I probably talked about this the first time I was on to me, it's all about decentralization. I think decentralization mm -hmm. is extremely important. Um, I, I don't like concentrated power. So uh, if we can decentralize things back as far as we can, you know, ultimately, I'd like to decentralize it all the way back to the individual. That would that would be the <laughs> yeah. ideal. But, um, yeah. Well, yeah, and that's what I love so much about what the, the Tenth Amendment Center does and, and why I try and, and uh, sort of uh, talk about you guys as much as I can here on this channel is you guys are really doing that so well on an issue by issue basis and you're really doing fantastic work it's just no matter whatever whatever issue people are trying to do to try and get power back to the individual it seems like you guys are working on that and i really appreciate that and i really respect that a lot well we appreciate you and the work that you're doing and uh and the support that you give us so the it's a two-way mutual uh mutual admiration society i guess <laughs> all right cool yeah so yeah, definitely uh, for everyone watching, go check out the Tenth Amendment Center. I know you say at the end of the show this is the one I would kind of hit you up for money personally, but uh, if you have a couple bucks to give uh, and you want to give it, uh, don't go visit my Patreon site. Go to the Tenth Amendment Center dot com slash donate uh, and give them a couple bucks, and they really, really deserve it. So uh, I'd say I say do both. You oh, can do both. You. I mean, you okay. could you can become a you can become a. a TAC member for as little as $2 a month. So that's nothing. So you can do that, two bucks to us. And then I don't know what your Patreon is, but two bucks go to the Patreon. Usually, yeah. yeah. But, do, you can do both. Yeah. But if you can do one or the other, I think the member center is the better money, but I appreciate that. Thank you. Well, 
Yeah. yeah. So, anyways, all right. Well, yeah. Uh, so yeah, yeah. Anything else to close out here, Mike? I think we've uh, I think we've covered the gun sanctuary thing pretty thoroughly, and I appreciate you bringing this up. I think it's an important issue, and I think it's one that's going to continue to uh, continue to be important in the in the years ahead. Because I don't think we're going to end up with less gun control from the federal level. So, no, we're have to fight not. it at the state and local level. Yeah, definitely. All right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. All right.